Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The new Biden-Harris administration has come to office pledging to place climate at the center of both its domestic and diplomatic agenda. This is, of course, a big shift from the prior administration, which disdained climate diplomacy in general and the Paris Agreement in particular. Now, 2021 will be a consequential year for climate action. In November, a major United Nations climate change conference takes place in Glasgow, Scotland. That conference was supposed to happen in 2020 to mark the five-year anniversary of the Paris Agreement, but it was postponed because of COVID. Now, the reason this particular conference is so important is that it is the venue in which governments are supposed to bring their enhanced National Climate Action Plans. These enhanced National Climate Action Plans are important because if the Paris Agreement goal of keeping global warming levels below 2 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels is to be met, governments are going to have to ramp up policies to take on climate change. My guest today, Rachel Kite, is the Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University and a longtime climate diplomacy insider. We kick off discussing how the Paris Agreement fared during the Trump years before having a longer conversation about opportunities for multilateral engagement to which the new U.S. administration may avail itself in the coming months. This is a great conversation that does a good job explaining some of the complex geopolitics around climate change that the new U.S. administration must skillfully navigate in order to make good on its promise to treat climate change like the priority it is. And today's episode is produced in partnership with the Better World Campaign as part of a series examining the opportunities for strengthening multilateral engagement by the new Biden-Harris administration and the new 117th Congress. To learn more and access additional episodes in this series, please visit getusback.org. And now here is my conversation with Rachel Kite, Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think it's interesting, looking back over those four years, that the Paris Agreement was battered and bruised, but it wasn't finished off. And that is, I think, 
obviously in large part because there was clauses put into the agreement that meant that countries just couldn't just walk out the door. The signal from the Rose Garden in June 2017 that the US would withdraw was immediately communicated to the UN, but but the process had to last for three, three and a half, four years. And that was put there specifically to insulate the Paris Agreement against um, the vagaries of the US political system. I think, secondly, the actual content of the Paris Agreement, the ratcheting up of ambition, the sort of mainstreaming of climate as as an imperative of how we manage our economies, the federal government signaled that it would leave and everybody else stepped up to the plate. And so America's pledged this remarkable organization of cities and towns and businesses and governors and mayors, um, you know, really has continued to sort of spur the U.S. or keep the U.S. moving in the direction of lower emissions. I remember around, it must have been 2018, I had the chance to speak with the mayor of Atlanta at the time, Kasim mm-hmm. Reed, and I asked him um, you know, if the decision by the Trump administration to pull out of the Paris Agreement gave him more political impetus to want to invest in, in climate and sustainable solutions in his city. He said his constituents had sort of urged him as a reaction to Trump's pullout to want to invest more in climate. So it seemed to have had that kind of equal and opposite reaction, at least domestically in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. So it was, it was a perversity almost from Trump's uh, withdrawal. Of course, you need the federal government uh, to be engaged because um, there are things that the federal government needs to do, which are sending signals to the private sector, sending signals to local and fe- uh, local governments. And as we now see with the Biden administration's um, uh, signaling, early signaling around how it's going to approach this, bringing a total government approach uh, to the table, um, the role of federal government is removing, you know, regulatory barriers from things happening more quickly, sending signals to every department of government that they should be engaging in this. And so hopefully having a much uh, greater impact on the speed and scale of the transition that all economies have got to go under. Uh, Internationally, at least to me, it seemed that Trump's decision to um, seek the withdrawal of the U.S. from the Paris Agreement in a way also demonstrated the durability of it internationally. I mean, we didn't Mm -hmm. see that cascade of countries following his lead, uh, which I think was a concern at the time. And that's just sort of didn't happen. There was no max exodus. I think there was a real fear at the time that there would be. I think that what did happen is inevitably slowed things down. It's as if every bad actor out there on the issue of climate change could hide behind the petticoats of the Trump administration. So even though they didn't withdraw, they had plausible deniability in terms of you know, their their assertiveness and their need for ambition. Um, and of course, you saw the US act as a thorn in the side of the climate dialogue in every other space. So not just the Paris Agreement, but then at the G20, at the G7, uh, at the WTO, um, at the General Assembly, at the Security Council, the US was either just not present or was actually actively uh, voicing its views against uh, climate change. Um, and so that, you know, that, that space that it gave for Saudi Arabia's, the Australia's, the Brazil's under Bolsonaro, even the Mexico's under AMLO um, 
and um, and obviously Russia under Putin, um, you know, that 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 was a drag. And obviously now with a new administration in all of those early phone calls that um, uh, President Biden made in the first few days in office, uh, you know, climate was there as one of the top one, two, three things that he was talking to every leader about. Uh, so how do you suspect that multilateral diplomacy around climate may change in the coming years and really actually even months as we lead up to uh, the Glasgow <laughs> summit in 2021? What do you expect to see from the Biden administration? What are you already seeing and what sort of impact will that have on what goes down in, in Glasgow in 2021? So uh, so it's going to be a packed year. As I speak to you now, there are going to be seven heads of state summits at least uh, this year on different issues of the global economy and, and nature and climate. And, uh, and, you know, running through all of that is climate, right? Um, so very, very busy year. The U.S. administration's come in day one. We're back into Paris one week, uh, two weeks into the administration, they come out with an executive order that says that this is a total government approach and gives strict marching orders to everybody from the Secretary of Defense, to the Secretary of Treasury, to the EPA. I mean, this is there's no uh, misunderstanding about the strategic importance of climate to the domestic agenda and the international agenda. Big things to look for, April 22nd, Earth Day in the United States, uh, 51 years of Earth Day. Um, the U.S. administration has said that it will bring forward its uh, next generation climate plan. This will have in it an emissions reduction target for 2030. So this is the ratcheting up that we uh, we, we uh, put in place uh, in the Paris Agreement. And now we start to see the, the jockeying for what is that emissions reduction. Uh, I think it's clear that it should be above 50 percent if it's truly going to be putting the U.S. on, on track for the net zero mid-century goal for uh, a world with warming limited to well below two degrees, 1.5 degrees. But um, exactly what that looks like, we don't know. Gina McCarthy is the domestic climate czar. It'll be her job to pull it together and make sure it makes sense. And John Kerry's job to sell it to the world. John Kerry and President Biden have been very clear that they know it wasn't enough to just say that they're back, that, they're, that their plan has to be commensurate. Now, it doesn't stop there. There's some early signals that the U.S. is going to come in and aggressively pursue the agenda around methane reduction and the other issues within the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal mm. Protocol. Just to pause you there, can you explain the Kigali Amendment to the yeah. Montreal Protocol? The Montreal Protocol was the uh, late 1980s agreement that successfully you know, eliminated or reduced the hole in the ozone layer that was such a, a problem at the time. Yes. Uh, so the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol um, uh, addresses uh, short-lived climate pollutants, in particular um, hydrochloroform carbons, which are uh, refrigerants. Uh, and they uh, obviously um, uh, have had an impact on uh, ozone issues, which is why it's an amendment to the Montreal Protocol. But they are a accelerant of climate warming. Uh, and uh, so black carbon, H HCFCs, HFCs and um, and methane uh, uh, go up into the atmosphere. They're short-lived in the atmosphere, unlike carbon dioxide, and they speed up and accelerate warming. So um, this is a story of air conditioning, in particular, 
It's uh, how do we keep um, ourselves cool so that we're economically productive? How do we keep food cool? How do we keep um, medicines cool in a warming world with more and more people going and living in cities where they aspire to and will need access to cooling for comfort? And we need to keep these these cold chains. Uh, it, we can't do that with super energy inefficient and polluting uh, uh, substances. So this is something where the, the, this was something that the U.S. was very engaged in under the Obama administration, and it would be very important. The U.S. is far behind in reducing methane, in particular because there are no effective at-scale uh, regulations around um, uh, gas flaring from shale gas and, and methane uh, within the gas infrastructure in the United States. And in fact, that's one of the things that Trump had rolled back. So that's a potentially important, I wouldn't say it's a low-hanging fruit, but it's not one of the most difficult things to do. Is there like a global agreement on methane? So there is no global agreement. There's no global treaty on methane. Methane is treated and examined under the IPCC and the, the scientific reports that feed into the uh, UNFCCC and is understood in, in the climate context. And obviously, uh, methane is, 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 is one of the short-lived climate pollutants that gets discussed also uh, within the Montreal Protocol. Uh, but we've seen lots of um, activity within industry in terms of what it would take to reduce methane. And this was one of the issues where the US had gone backwards under Trump um, and, and it could, could spring forward uh, quite importantly. There is something called a global gas flaring um, reduction uh, facility, which is housed in the World Bank Group and has more than 80 countries and more than, uh, you know, uh, more than, or more than many, many more private companies involved in that. And that is where you get the sort of Angolan government to commit to a target of reducing flaring from gas and you get then the you know state-owned oil company in the, in the equivalent country to do the same um, and the US has, has not been a player in that for some time. So it does seem you know beyond Paris there is lots of opportunity for multilateral engagement by the incoming uh, mm -hmm. Biden administration. Um, aside from the entities that you've already mentioned, like this World Bank platform, the Kigali Amendment, what else sort of springs to mind as perhaps low-hanging fruit or something a little more ambitious that the United States might want to engage on? Well, so there's going to be no deal in in Glasgow in November 2021 without a deal on finance. Uh, and there are a number of different facets to this. The first is the uh, pre-Paris uh, uh, agreement that there should be $100 billion a year of uh, financial assistance from the countries that caused the problem in the first place to the rest of the world. And that $100 billion a year has never been achieved. There's been a massive argument about how we count that 100 billion, et cetera. But in reality, it's not there. Um, the UK has got a bit of a problem at the moment because the, quant the quantification by independent experts is that we're about 79 billion. So where's the other 21 going to come from? The UK re itself, remember, cut its aid earlier this year um, in <clears throat> diplomatically one of the greatest examples of cutting off your nose to spite your face. So the real challenge is, can the U.S. come in with a big sort of re-entry into climate finance? They have outstanding arrears to the global uh, green finance, uh, the green um, 
Climate Fund, um, and they have lots of tools at their disposal to really up their uh, bilateral uh, climate finance. Can you just explain for listeners like the political importance, the international diplomatic and political importance of um, reaching that $100 billion uh, target on yeah. climate finance for the viability of the Paris Agreement and international you know, diplomacy around climate more generally? Like, What's the logic behind yeah. that? So the $100 billion, um, is a political talisman because it was a promise. It was a promise which was offered and, you know, in return for, you know, return for which developing countries agreed to, you know, a pathway of progress uh, within climate negotiations. And the promise hasn't been kept. And it is an open sore. It's a it's a it's a constant reminder for developing countries, for low income countries in particular, for landlocked countries and small island states that, you know, there's a lot of a lot of talk. But then when it really comes down to it, there's not a lot of assistance on offer to these countries who did not cause the problems that they are now having to de- deal with in terms of climate impacts. But put it fast forward to today and it's uh, uh, and put yourself in the shoes of some of these low income countries. Um, the hundred billion's not there. Aid is constrained because of the global economic crisis. The global economic crisis has hit them too. They are borrowing in order to stay afloat. They are up against their debt limits. They want to have debt uh, relief, but the only thing that's been an offer in 2020 is some potential small-scale rescheduling of debt, which was important, but which isn't enough. And maybe they can't get access to global vaccines as well. And so there is a a real sense that if they are expected to come to Glasgow and play nice, then it's high time that uh, the developed world put something on the table that really uh, that really is is commensurate to the size of the problem. And I think the other thing is that where there has been enormous concentration on uh, really clamping down on emissions and there's been a global campaign to. Uh, really stop the financing of coal-fired power, for example, in energy infrastructure. Um, So we're telling countries you should not and you will not be able to get access to financing for coal-fired power or any fossil fuel power, which is where the campaign is going now. There is no commensurate offer on the table to help countries at scale build the green energy infrastructure that they need. And this is a big opportunity for the United States. What would be the platform that the Biden administration could use to summon some sort of international momentum around building this climate fund? Uh, I mean, is this something we might expect, say, at the General Assembly, which happens a few months or six weeks or so before Glasgow? What and where is the venue for this diplomacy to take place? Well, so I think there's a big finance package, um, which is part of, you know, an even bigger sort of climate package. And it involves China, it involves the European Union, and it involves the United States. China, why? Because um, uh, they have an extraordinary amount of debt owed to them by low-income countries, and they have been the biggest infrastructure investor for for many years. European Union, because they're the other big uh, power at the table, and the US. So I think you're going to start to see pieces of this emerge over the course of the year. First of all, the IMF last year asked for uh, a new issue of special drawing rights to allow it to respond to a number of countries 
uh, more than 90 countries who are suffering from high levels of debt as a result of the economic crisis related to COVID. They were unable to get an agreement on that with the Trump administration. The Biden administration has to grease the wheels and allow the IMF to have the capacity to respond. But there is a conversation that that capacity to respond should actually be that the that that what countries do with the response is that they uh, move down a greener path of growth and development. So you're beginning to see some kind of green conditionality. Mm. Second, there's a conversation about actually relieving countries of their debt. And there are a number of conversations going on about, well, if we're going to relieve debt, first of all, we don't want all that money to then go to China to pay off China's bilateral debt with these countries. But more importantly, what we want to do is make sure that in the debt relief, the quid pro quo is green um, um, and sustainable investment in green infrastructure, resilient agriculture, etc. So again, people don't want to talk about conditionality, but it's like we relieve the debt Mm. and we help countries get onto a greener pathway. Those kinds of things you'll start hopefully seeing before the G7 in the UK in June. Um, And then I think the the third part of it then is – you know, when when does the U.S. sort of announce that it's going to put money into the Green Climate Fund? When does the U.S. come out with a bilateral um, climate resilience package? Because I think for many low-income countries, what they desperately need is assistance in terms of their own adaptation and resilience to climate impacts, which are happening now. And and I think that has to go beyond um, sort of some of the interest and, and the investment in sort of parametric uh, insurance. You know, if you get bad weather. If you have terrible storms, you know, you can you, you, there's an insurance package for that. I think we we need to be investing much, much more in actual adaptation and resilience. And both the secretary general um, and others have called for a, an equal treatment of adaptation and resilience in mm. terms of funding as mitigation. It's just interesting to me hearing you describe like the geopolitics of what would make for a successful summit in Glasgow in 2021 involving uh, the United States principally and and the rest of the developed world doing more to relieve the debt burdens of the developing world, debt burdens brought on by by COVID. This is the the deepest and broadest uh, economic slowdown we've seen in modern economic history. And it comes at a time when we know that we need to restore nature. We know that we need to cut emissions. We know that the world is deeply unequal. And so if we're going to uh, bail ourselves out of this problem, then we need to put ourselves on a track uh, that, that deals with deals with all of these issues. And it's also, you know, Glasgow is very, very important, but this is a two, three year agenda, right? So, you know, the United Nations Environment Programme is saying, look, we're living through three planetary crises at the moment, a crisis of uh, climate change, a crisis of biodiversity and nature and a crisis of pollution and waste. And so, you know, we've, we've got two to three years to sort of sort out uh, the bits of the system that meant that we arrived at this point in time. And so I think that for the US, they're back they they are a global economic power. Their relationship with China is important. That they could come forward, potentially. Could uh, you know China has a Belt and Road Initiative? They need to green their Belt and Road Initiative so that they're not funding uh, polluting technologies in developing countries. And the U.S. can come alongside and say, okay, here's 
here's our green infrastructure investment package for, for other countries. Now, Biden would then have to sell that to the American public and explain why helping other countries grow greener is good for America. But that's where the jobs are. Um, that is where um, you prevent uh, other conflicts from happening into which the U.S. may get drawn in. That's going to be challenging because there's um, there's as much sort of maybe not isolationism, but inward looking on the left of the Democratic Party as there is on the right of the Republican Party. So so much of, of the agenda that you stake out for the uh, Biden administration, uh, you know, it will be on the shoulders of John Kerry to sort of put this into motion. Have you spoken with him since he accepted this new role? At the time that I uh, was talking to him, it had not yet been announced, although we were expecting the announcement any time that he was going to take this role. And he was uh, laying down uh, and sending signals about how uh, how central this was going to be to the president's agenda, how sweeping their ambition was going to be. Also sending a very clear signal um, that they knew that um, having walked away, it wasn't just enough to walk back. You know, they 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 have to walk back and be back and stay back and be a good partner. Um, and that they understood um, that for the rest of the world, there would be some question mark over the U.S.'s you know, ability to come back and stay back. I mean, everybody's become an expert in American politics, right? Everybody's sat up and watched the election. And so, you know, we, everybody knows that there are midterms in two years time and the Senate is, you know, a 50-50 Senate. So, um, yeah, I think I think that um, he was clear. He wanted to send a clear signal of ambition, um, but but also realizing that you know there might be some uh, eyebrows still raised because of um, because of the past history of walking away. Um, lastly, you know, what will you be looking out towards in the next weeks or months that will suggest to you um, whether sort of the rhetoric of the Biden administration when it comes to climate and calling this an emergency and, you know, and, and making climate a priority uh, throughout the government um, matches actual action? Uh, what are some key inflection points that we should be looking out for that will to suggest to us one way or another um, how seriously the Biden administration is taking this? So I think the, the big one is April 22nd, the announcement of the U.S. plan uh, for and within that will be the emissions reduction target for 2030. Um, but there'll be, you know, what else is in there as well? I think uh Domestically, uh, it'll be very important to see what kind of um, recovery packages emerge. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see the ambition in Pete Buttigieg's agenda as the uh, transportation secretary. Um, I think it's also going to be important to see how the U.S. turns up at the World Trade Organization. Obviously, they uh, sent a signal that allowed uh, Ngozi um Conjure Oyala to uh, to uh, become the director general. The director general at WTO is not the most powerful person. This is a very strong member state led entity. But again, we're going to have some very important issues around border tax adjustments. You know, how does carbon get trade treated when it is exported from one country to another, either embedded in a in a in a in a commodity or embedded in a product? Um, and so the for the last few years. Um, uh, the trade agenda and the climate agenda have been far too distant, where we're getting to the point now where 
we really need to make sure that the trade regime supports the transfer and um, and the trade in in green technologies and, and green products and processes. So um, it'll be interesting to see how the U.S. turns up in Geneva, also because that was a place where the America first under the Trump regime was was really quite destructive. Um, so I think that there are a number of places where you'll get a signal of um, the reality of this total government approach. But uh, really, if the U.S. comes forward with a plan which is not sufficient in its ambition on April the 22nd, um, then it's going to be quite hard for them to uh, maintain the kind of um, leadership that I think the whole world wants them to have um, this year. Uh, Well, Dean, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. No, thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dean Rachel Kite. That was excellent. And I really appreciated in particular the explanation of the geopolitics around getting the developing world on board with the global climate change agenda. It was a great conversation. I am glad to have Dean Kite back on the show to discuss this. All right. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to the Better World Campaign for partnering with the podcast around a series on opportunities for multilateral engagement in the coming years and months of the new administration and the new Congress. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.